What's up, Bikerimer fans? This is the first of an occasional series that I'll be mixing into the podcast called What's Up With? It's an exploration of a particular product or technology that's far more interesting than it may appear at first glance. Some will be obviously interesting, like suspension. Others might surprise you, like today's subject, the SRAM Universal Derailleur Hanger. As it turns out, there's a lot more than meets the eye about this humble little part. Not only is it a real game changer for anyone who needs a replacement in a pinch, but the story of how it came to be and quickly gain acceptance amongst bike brands is, well, interesting. Far more interesting than I would have guessed, actually. So I reached out to SRAM's MTB marketing manager, Chris Mandel, and we had a chat about it. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. If there's a part or technology you'd like us to explore, head over to bikerumor.com slash podcast and let us know. And now, please welcome Chris Mandel. Hey, Chris, welcome to the Bike Rumor Show. Hey, Tyler, thank you very much for having me on today. Yeah, man. So I've, I've been looking forward to this, which like maybe more so than I should for such a simple little part, right? But we're going to talk about the SRAM Universal Derailleur Hanger, UDH. And for such a small part, it's really kind of had an outsized impact, I think, even before we get to maybe the real reason why this part was created. But, you know, this is one of those few things that I think clearly has some business reasons for existing, but it also solves a real problem for consumers, makes everybody's lives better, makes shops jobs easier, makes mechanics jobs easier. I mean, it's like a win all the way around, but you know, like take us back, like where did this idea come from? Yeah. You know, I think I I can actually go a little further back even than SRAM's inception of the idea of the UDH hanger and back to some my personal experience of actually working at an OEM and managing the, I think, 78 different derailleur hangers that we had at the time when I was working at an OEM. And it was insane, you know, the all the different derailleur hangers, figuring out which bikes they went on. You know, there's a lot of things that have resulted in, in so many different derailleur hangers existing out in the world between rear axles changing over time, the perceived needs of what a hanger is offering changing over time. So I feel for all the shop employees and I feel for all the consumers who struggled through getting a derailleur hanger replaced over time or straightening a derailleur hanger, um, which is a nerve wracking experience if you've done it before because you don't want to break it. From SRAM side of things, you can think about this in terms of what the derailleur hanger is doing. You know, it's the mounting point for our mech in between um, the frame and the cassette. And for us, reducing the total number of tolerance stack, the total amount or opportunity for tolerance stack in between the derailleur and the cassette means that we're going to have better overall shifting performance. So we had heard, because we are cyclists ourselves, and we felt, as well as hearing, all the groans about different derailleur hanger standards that exist out in the world. So that's that's like a point of information that came into us that we knew because we had lived it trying to get derailleur hangers for our own personal bikes. So we saw an opportunity there. Additionally, now with UDH, you know, we've taken a lot of those elements out in terms of we know where our derailleur is mounted to the UDH hanger and then that UDH hanger goes directly up against the end cap of the hub, which then the cassette is mounted to. And that end cap of the hub interfaces with 
the XD driver system. So it's just eliminating some of the points at which tolerances could stack up in between the derailleur and the cassette itself. Additionally, we knew that there were some opportunities to improve what the derailleur hanger could do on a bike. So we could make the stiffness appropriate for maximizing shift performance. We could also do things like make it so that the derailleur hanger is able to slip backwards in the frame so that the derailleur can get out of the way of an obstacle and, and not brakes. If you think about our axis rear derailleurs right now, they have the overload clutch, which allows them to move inboard on the bike when they're hit with an obstacle. And the UDH paired with that also allows it to go back, rotate backwards. And then the user in that situation can just rotate it back forwards again. And then another another opportunity there was to make sure that the chain, if it should derail to the outboard, so off the 10 to between the frame and the and the cassette, we've got that um, fin that sticks up there and allows the derailleur hanger to actually push the chain back onto the 10 tooth cog, thereby saving your frame from any damage from that chain jumping off or your chain from jamming in between your cassette and your frame. Nice. Yeah, that's a lot. So some derailleur hangers, I think, or or at least the bolts between the derailleur and the hanger in the past have been designed to break away as opposed to rotate away. Was that ever a consideration with this to just let it be like a disposable part? I think, I, I don't know. I haven't heard anything specifically from the engineers on that front. I do think it is important to kind of think about like, if your derailleur was to break, your derailleur, you, you know, if it was to like break free, it's going to go to probably the one place you don't want it to go, which is into the rear wheel. So I think breakaway derailleur hangers, um, you know, that's not what we were going for on this front. You know, like I think going the ability for the derailleur to rotate backwards is absolutely part of the design philosophy here. We are looking to provide opportunities for that derailleur to get out of the way, but I don't think we want it like really floating in space because the thing that's that's real close to it is a whirling spinning <laughs> yeah, a lot, wheel a lot that's of gonna spokes. that's gonna eat it. Yeah, and, and talk about another standard that is hard to replace sometimes are our spokes. So you don't want to tear those up either. So when it does, it, and I haven't had it happen thankfully, but if you hit something and it causes the derailleur to rotate back to let that thing slip back. Does that ruin that hanger or do you literally just like maybe loosen the axle, slide it back into position and you're good to go? Yeah, I mean, usually you don't even have to loosen the axle. Usually you can just push the derailleur forward back to the stop. Um, that is part of the UDH standard. So the UDH standard defines both the derailleur shape and configuration as well as the frame fitment. And so that frame fitment allows for the derailleur hanger to have a stop with which it goes forward against and then it also allows it to like rotate freely backwards so if your derailleur hanger was to rotate backwards you'd simply grab the derailleur hanger and the derailleur in most cases and just push it forward again you might have to loosen your axle and rotate it forward but i haven't had that experience so far it's just been you know grab the derailleur push it forward Cool. So one thing that I didn't know up until very recently was that it's actually a mixed material use. You know, if you just look at it on a bike, 
you wouldn't even think, I wouldn't think to look at it and say, huh, I wonder what this is made of. I just assumed it was metal because you want that stiffness and hangers have always been metal, right? But then Wheels Manufacturing sent out a little PR about their replacement UDH hanger and it was a lot more expensive. And I was like reading, I'm like, man, why is this thing like two, three times as much as the SRAM replacement ones? And then they made, they called it out. It's like, you know, all metal, right? No plastic as a selling point, which, you know, I'm sure it's stiffer. It might be tougher and all that. But so then I started looking at it closer and I reached out to you and we're like, yeah, sure enough. It's like plastic or some sort of composite over metal. So what's the purpose of that mixed material? Yeah, well, I mean, we've actually kind of been sort of like touched on a couple of those points already, you know. So so you're right, it is a combination of aluminum and a plastic material. The aluminum is the, the threads that the bolts engage with, and then that also goes down and is actually like where the derailleur mounts. And those two, that's like one piece of aluminum, and then there's plastic coal-molded over the top of it. I would say it's, it is a very stiff interface. So I don't think that plastic co-molded over it is, is going to reduce the overall stiffness of this. So if you had a full aluminum version, I don't, I don't think there's going to be a stiffness difference between those two, really. The, however, we, we did put the plastic in there for some very specific reasons. You know, one of them is that's the bushing air quotes bushing that the derailleur rotates on if it was to get smacked backwards. So instead of having an aluminum cylinder that would be sliding inside of the frame, it's actually that's your you're sliding inside the plastic inside the frame at that point. And then the the fin that I mentioned earlier that allows the chain, um, if it were to jump up onto the derailleur hanger to push it back down onto the 10 tooth cog, that part is the plastic portion as well. And I think those are kind of the two important elements. But again, like the threads that the bolt tightens onto, as well as the portion of the derailleur, that derailleur hanger that the derailleur mounts to is also aluminum. Um, but it really is the frame interface and the, and sort of the, the fin that the chain gets pushed back down onto. One other thing I'd mentioned too there is, you know, we did design this as it is an open standard. So the intention is that everyone can make their own version of this derailleur hanger. So, you know, if you, for example, had a Santa Cruz bike today, it's most likely coming with a Santa Cruz UDH hanger that's made along with the same fit specifications as our UDH hanger. And then obviously, you know, you have to mention the wheels manufacturing version of that. Cool. Yeah, I like that. I'm glad you guys did that. It's I think something that, you know, as a consumer, we'd love to see more of, right? Like open standards that allow for more creators to get involved when necessary. So when you took this around to brands initially, because this has been out for what, four years now-ish? Yeah, I think I thought I I went to this call thinking that I had that off the top of my head. Um, We launched it in September of 2019. Okay, so coming up on... Well, three years, right about now. Adoption is funny because like, as you would suspect with many things in this industry, adoption can be slow at first, you know, smaller brands maybe pick up it quick, but we're still seeing like bigger brands just finally making the switch. Like Evil Bikes over the past couple of months has just sent out a couple of press releases about new versions of their bikes that update to a UDH rear hanger. So three years on, you still have some medium-sized, big-sized brands adopting this new standard. Well, not even new anymore, this standard. 
But when you first started taking it around and showing to bike brands, like what was the reception? Were they like, oh crap, now we got to change something else? Or <laughs> I think we have really good relationships with our OEM partners and I mean, I hope so. <laughs> when we when, <laughs> when when we bring something like this to them and and talk to them about the advantages that we see to it, and you know, a lot of those customers are riders themselves. So again, they see they've like lived all of these problems. They're you know they're they're looking in their catalog and seeing that they are also offering a ton of different derailleur hanger standards. So yeah, you know, the uptake. And the reception was like extremely positive across the industry. And I think that it takes everyone at different periods of time to to change their molds over. And, you know, especially in the last few years, things have been very complicated on the, the supply side of things. And so people have been switching over pretty quickly um, as they, they see it, but they've been doing it in the context of their broader development efforts. Right. I'm curious, will this, because this is mainly a mountain bike thing at the moment, will we see this come to road and gravel? Yeah, you know, I think we're always exploring and looking at different ways to approach things. And I think that this is obviously like very clearly a like mountain bike focused solution, you know, not ruling out a road side of things, but don't have anything to kind of talk about at that at this point. Right. Is there any, you know, this is more of a top level question, but like, is there any reason why it wouldn't work for road or gravel? Is there something very mountain bike specific about this? No, there isn't. It absolutely would work on a road or gravel bike. And I can't recall any of them off the top of my head, but I do believe there are gravel bikes currently that use the UDH hanger. But I do think, you know, gravel and road, road more so, you know, they're always looking for the lightest, speltest option. So I think that probably maybe gives some road product managers some pause, but there's absolutely advantages to it on that side of things. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the gravel makes more sense too, because you have a lot of bikes using like a mullet build now in terms of drivetrain, right? Like mountain bike derailleur and cassette with, you know, front one by. So yeah. Yeah. I could see that actually be a limiting factor based on what you guys theoretically have coming down the pipe with that mounting standard, which Let's dive into that for a minute. So we've seen some sneak peeks and actually some prototypes. And I, I physically touched a direct mount SRAM rear derailleur on a bike. I haven't been able to ride one yet, but it's. I think it's pretty clear you guys are at least working on it. You know, and I know you don't want to talk about specifics with that design, but you know, what can you say about like what came first? Was it like okay, this is what we want to do, but here's the baby steps we need to get there. Or was, let's do this cool derailleur hanger thing and then like, oh, well, that really lets us do something else. You know, we're always working on improving the rider's experience. And I think that the UDH hanger is a really good example of where, as cyclists, we saw that current derailleur hangers were letting riders down. And we worked really hard to make it so that riders could walk into any bike shop and get this derailleur hanger and this derailleur hanger had like improvements over any other derailleur hanger that was available on the market that you know the ability to push the chain back down on the cassette the ability to rotate backwards so we're always working on stuff i don't have any comments with what <laughs> you directly just asked me about i'm sorry to let you down there but i would say like very clearly we're driven to improve the cycling experience. And we're going to find every possible way to do that for our riders. Yeah. 
you know, that reminds me of just like getting from point A to point Z, right, is a, a story that I want to say it was Chris Hilton, who was at one point one of SRAM's mountain bike and drivetrain people. And when you launched the one by, you know, the Eagle stuff originally, he was like, yeah, there was no way we could go from a three by nine to a one by 11 at the time, right? He's like, people would lose their minds. Nobody would buy it. Everybody would hate it. So we had to go from three to three by nine to two by 10 to one by 11 over a period of years. And, you know, ease people into this progression. I imagine it would have been maybe sort of the same if you had gone from like 78, 80 million different hangers to, hey, we have this direct mount rear derailleur now, and here's a couple of bikes it's going to fit on, right? I think Chris is actually, I mean, I think we should all pause for a moment and express some appreciation for Chris, because (laughs) I think Chris is one of those individuals at SRAM who... He he actually works for us again. Um, he's working on oh, cool. um, some new business development projects, and it's, it's really great having him back inside the organization. But I think Chris is a really good example of someone who we should all be thankful for because he was a huge driving force behind getting the front derailleurs off of bikes, and I'm deeply appreciative for that. But it wasn't him alone. You know, it was him working on a on a huge team and pulling that team together in a way that allowed like the really good ideas to percolate to the top. And, you know, to bring it back to the, the point of this podcast and the UDH hangar, like that's how a lot of these little improvements, which get you from point A to point Z kind of come about is someone saying, Hey, I'm frustrated because we have to have so many different derailleur hangers to get all these different bikes to work. And then someone else saying like, I'm frustrated because there's a huge tolerance stack in between the derailleur and the cassette. And that makes it really hard for us to optimize shipping performance. And those two thoughts coalesce around the idea of, well, if we made a universal derailleur hanger where we reduce some of those tolerance, some of that tolerance stacking, we'd have better shift performance and you'd be able to walk into any shop in the world and get a derailleur hanger for your bike. That's when you start stacking the wins. Seems like a no brainer. Yeah. Yeah. So what, like, had anybody tried to accomplish this before? Because clearly you guys with the relationships with the frame manufacturers might have a little bit easier time bringing this idea to everybody that needs to see it. Right. But like, how has nobody thought of this before? Or had they and just not succeeded? Yeah. You know, I, that's a good question that I don't have the answer to. I don't know that. I mean, I know from my time in the industry, UDH was the first time it was ever sort of, I was aware of a movement like this or, you know, an open standard like this. But we have done, SRAM have done things like this in the past. You know, XD Driver is obviously an example of it. Another really good example of it that I obviously know much more intimately because I was the rear shock product manager is um, the metric shock size standard, which was hugely beneficial to both shock performance, but also the ease with which you could design a frame or a set of frames around rear shocks and rear shock sizing. Yeah, not to get off on a tangent, but you know, I understand like the sizing and fitment issues, but how does switching to a metric sized thing improve performance of a rear shock? Oh yeah. So that's a great question. I mean, baseline, the the very first place to start is just with increasing the length of the shock relative to the stroke. So with imperial shock sizing, you know, that was really, the sizes of those shocks was really, really driven by 
purely the frame manufacturing engineers. So the, the frame engineers were like, I need to fit, I need to fit a shock inside my frame. I don't know anything about designing a shock, but I need the shortest possible shock with the most stroke I can possibly get because that's going to make it the easiest to fit into my frame. And then that shows up on the desk of the shock engineer. And they're like, I don't have any space to put anything inside this shock because there's no room left because your eye to eye is really short and your stroke is really long, which if you think about, if you kind of imagine that in your head, when your eye to eye is very short and your stroke is very long, when you collapse that shock towards bottom out, what that means is the amount of space that's left over is very, very small. And when that amount of space that's very, is very small, it means that you don't have very much room for bushing overlap. You don't have very much stack height for all of your circuitry on your pistons. And it just reduces the total amount of things that you can do inside of a shock to make it robust and focused on performance. So it sounds like the metric, because it's not just as simple as going from imperial numbers to metric numbers. It's, it sounds more like it was the shock, you know, the suspension manufacturer saying, hey, we're going to do these sizes now and you need to adapt your frames around that instead of us adapting our suspension around your frames. Yeah. And I mean, it was, it was definitely more, much more of a conversation. So, and, and actually I joined RockShox in 2015, but I was, RockShox came to me prior to me joining RockShox when I worked at an OEM and they said, Hey, we're thinking about doing, changing the shock sizing standards to this. What do you think about doing that? And I was fully on board for it at the time because we had recognized internally that, you know, one of the things that wasn't really working for us was shock performance in general, but also the gaps in between shock sizes. So that, that's another aspect of this too, is, you know, now you have lots of companies who are designing bikes that can, you know, they, they work off of the root size of like a 230 millimeter shock eye to eye, but that frame can kind of give you the ability to build like a light duty trail bike if you run a 57.5 stroke shock. So you have a little bit less travel. But then if you want a full long travel smashing bike, then you go up to 65 millimeter stroke. And then you have a flip chip that changes the leverage a little bit. So you, you get consistent performance there. You know, another thing to keep in mind with that is that it just gives that frame designer the ability to say at the beginning of a project, this is what I think I want the leverage rate curve to be. This is what I think I want the travel to be. But then at the end of the day, if they decide they need to make the seat tube a little bit slacker or a little bit steeper or make some other change, they can really quickly and really easily with a standard offering change the total amount of travel that the shock's offering. So go from a 65, let's say, to a 62.5. It creates a lot of flexibility. And you know that's all on the frame engineer side of things. But if we don't forget about the consumer here, what the consumer is getting out of the deal is a much better ride performance in terms of the shock because there's more bushing overlap inside the shock there's more stack height on the piston to build more complicated circuits you know that means that you can have rebound checks on your piston that means your piston can be can be taller that means that your shim stack can be taller if you can build a a taller shim stack that means you can use thinner shims it's just better performance all around right so let's extrapolate that a little bit to the udh then with 
you know, how much of a conversation was that when you started to come up with the idea or did you just go, did you come up with the design that you, you needed that design to be what it was to work and then go to the frame and if I just say, look, here's this, here's why you should use it and go. Or was it like, did you work with a few different bike brands to say, hey, what do we need to do on your end to make this work for our goals on our end? Yeah, that's a great question. To be honest with you, I, you know, on the metric shock sizing thing, I absolutely know that there was a ton of back and forth and a lot of what ended up in the metric shock standard was a result of feedback from OEM customers. The bearing eyelets would be a good example of that. Trunnion would be another good example of that. On the UDH side of things, I'm a little bit less familiar with the like exact back and forth on how that happened. I do know there was open conversation between us and our OEM customers, but I don't know. I don't know the blow by blow as well there. Right. A couple of quick tech specs just to kind of wrap it up because I'm curious. So like there literally only is like one UDH, right? Like there's no option. Well, so we offer one UDH. Like we have the singular part number that we offer that is our UDH hanger. There are, because it is an open standard, as you mentioned before, Wheels Manufacturing has a UDH compatible derailleur hanger that they offer. OEMs do that as well. So there are more than just our UDH hanger out on the market that fit the standard, but there is only one UDH hanger from us. Okay. So as far as the standard goes, because you have frames that have some very different layouts and, and I'm thinking of the, like the Trek ABP in particular, right? Where it's a really thick rear dropout section because you have the rear suspension pivot is concentric with the axle, right? Like, do you need like a different UDH? Like, do, would they have to make their own to be able to have the part that the through axle bolts into long enough to fit through all of that? Or is that, do you just say, nope, sorry, it's not going to work with that frame? So I can't remember the exact configuration of that frame, but it's one UDH hanger. Okay. All right. And that, so I guess that specifies the thread pitch as well. So the, the UDH standard, I don't remember the exact like in envelope of like where we, where we end and where we begin. Um, we're mostly focused on like the frame clearance side of it. The, actual bolting on like the thread pitch of the bolt and all that i believe the individual uh, manufacturers can define themselves the uda hanger that we offer is reverse threaded that's related to what we're doing with having the derailleur hanger being able to rotate backwards and you know you do it is nice that it has a little indicator on it showing you that you want to reverse thread to tighten that thing up but I believe if you're manufacturing your own UDH hanger, that's one of the things that you can you can pull on. Just like you don't have to manufacture it half out of plastic and aluminum like we do. Right. So let's for somebody who hasn't seen one in person, the when you say reverse threaded, you're not threading the through axle, the rear through axle directly into it in reverse, right? Because that would require everybody to get a new through axle. This is this is a like a capture. Yeah, bolt, yeah. Right? So the your rear axle on your to hold your wheel on works just like normal but the the bolt that mounts the derailleur hanger to the frame is reverse threaded gotcha and then the through axle threads into the bolt gotcha right on all right so is there anything i didn't ask that like some little weird aspect of the udh that nobody knows about 
what else don't we know about this? No, I mean, thing? I think we, I think we covered it pretty well. I do, I did appreciate you bringing up the fact that it's made out of two different materials. We did that for a specific reason, for specific outcomes that that improve the rider's experience with the product. So that I appreciate you bringing that up. And I think your point of I didn't realize it was like that until uh, until someone else actually pointed it out. I think is is totally fair because when you hold the part in your hand. Um, it becomes apparent, but most people don't hold derailleur hangers in their hands because they're they're bolted onto their bike. Yeah, I mean, I and it's still like I have one sitting on my workbench because I have a spare laying around, and I, I still have to look really close to be able to tell. Like, it's hard. So one thing I, I'm I'm glad I remember this because early on you mentioned about it. I think your words were appropriately stiff. Right? Is there like, do you want the hanger to be as stiff as possible to make? to just to keep like all the shifting like super precise or do you, should there be some built-in flex or movement you want the i mean you want it to be as you want it to be fairly stiff like you don't want something wiggling around back there like you can really easily imagine how having a very very soft derailleur hanger um would result in you you go to make a shift and the derailleur gets flexed over rather than making a precise shift. Um, there's a whole lot of c- things to consider as you're doing that. Like you wouldn't, you know, like you don't want to take up too much space back there. So you can't obviously make your derailleur as thick as a two by four, um, because that, that wouldn't work. Um, so yeah, I think, I think you are looking to have the stiffest possible, um, um, shift performance back there. Um, but it's working within the constraints of like how much space you have and all that. All right. So do the derailleur bolts, the, the bolt that comes on the current derailleurs that bolts it into the hanger. Does anybody still use breakaway bolts then? Or is, you know, there's still plenty of bikes out there that don't have UDH hanger. Like do the current SRAM Eagle derailleurs come with breakaway bolts or is it meant to deform in some way instead? I don't understand the question. Sorry. Is the current Eagle derailleurs, do they come with bolts that attach it to the hanger? Like, are those bolts designed to break away? No. The Are you talking about the, okay. the bolt that mounts the derailleur to the derailleur hanger? Correct. No. Okay. So we're relying on the hangers to take that in some way, shape, or form. <laughs> well, so I, th- I think I think there's a little bit of a... This is, this is a good one, actually, to touch. Um, you know, I think replaceable derailleur hangers are you know they they came about when we transitioned from steel frames where you could bend your derailleur hanger countless times after you hit it on an obstacle um and then we we switched to having more and more frames on the market that were aluminum and carbon where obviously that isn't a thing you know like aluminum will just break eventually um and carbon will break right away um and so the replaceable derailleur hanger was really to save the frame it didn't really have anything to do with the derailleur or or with anything else and i and i think like we've all had that experience right like if you have a a derailleur hanger that breaks it's usually breaking because something's hitting it from the outside and when it breaks where does it go into the wheel and then when it goes into the wheel like the you've 
you've got like a compounding number of problems. Like your chain's probably smoked at that point. You may or may not lose some spokes and the derailleur is not coming back to life. So the, you know, the idea of a derailleur hanger failing at a specific amount of force to try to save your rear derailleur, I don't think that's like a realistic thing. So, um, yeah, we didn't design that into, into our rear derailleurs or into the UDH standard. Right on. So, yeah, so it sounds like it's kind of, even though like the current Eagle Access derailleurs, some of them are very, very expensive. It might be better off to sacrifice that than like your wheel plus your chain. Well, plus yeah, your and frame. That's, that's actually like a great point. Like all of our access derailleurs, every single access derailleur we've ever made features the overload clutch, which we specifically designed to allow the derailleur to move out of the way when it's hit and then back to the exact cog that it's supposed to be in. Um, which is super yeah, fun which to is play super fun. I mean, this is, you know, <laughs> if, if your listeners haven't done this, you know, look up the videos that we have on the internet of, of our employees hitting the derailleur with a hammer, simulating a rock on a trail, and the derailleur will move out of the way and then instantaneously return back to the gear that it was previously in. Um, we spent a ton of time on that technology and we're really, really proud of it. And we invested in that because we knew and understood that our riders were going to invest in like a very expensive piece of kit in these derailleurs. And we knew from our experience as cyclists that you're going to hit the derailleur on a rock. And so we needed to make sure that, um, that you would be able to hit your derailleur on a rock and carry on with your day. Right on. Well, I appreciate that, uh, having experienced it firsthand, but also I like to smack it every once in a while just to show yeah. people because it is yeah. super cool. So if you got an Eagle Access derailleur and you haven't done it yet, just like shift it into a smaller cog and go like smack it inboard real quick and yeah. watch it pop back. It's super fun. And you can, awesome. I mean, I hear it happen on the trail all the time. I'll like hit it on something and it'll move out of the way and it'll jump back in. You know, my wife and I did a big long e-bike ride on Monday of this week. And, uh, I definitely did that at one point. Nice. Cool. Well, Chris, man, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for kind of filling in a lot of holes that, and questions that I had about the UDH and related. Yeah. Appreciate it. No problem. Thank you very much. And, um, I hope this is interesting to your readers and we may have to go back and do a more extended one on the metric rear shock sizing standard at some point. Yeah, that would be super fun. If you like this episode and have a product or tech you're curious about, head over to bikerumor.com slash podcast and fill in the form to submit your idea. You'll also find links and photos for this episode there, plus a link to this and every other episode we've ever recorded. If you really like this and want more, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player and leave us a rating and review. That's the grease that keeps our wheels spinning over here in podcast land, and it helps us keep getting amazing guests for you. You can find us on social. We're at Bike Rumor on all the things. And if you like random entrepreneurship, NFT, Web3, cycling stuff, you'll find me at Tyler Benedict on all the social channels. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep the rubber side down.